Welcome back. We now bring you Spy Wednesday bonus episode two, continuing in the theme of Holy Week. This episode is an excerpt from John Johnson's course in the Magnus Fellowship. In the end was the word, eschatology, mimesis, and the beloved disciple. Remember that for just $25 a month, you can get the rest of the recordings for this class and all the rest of the courses in the Magnus Fellowship, just $25 a month. That's over 25 courses. Each course meets for eight weeks for two hours a week. That's over 400 hours of lectures on topics across the liberal arts for just $25 a month. So again, for today, this special second Spy Wednesday bonus episode, an excerpt from John Johnson's course in the Magnus Fellowship, Eschatology, Mimesis, and the Beloved Disciple. We hope you enjoy magnusinstitute.org for more. Okay, thank you all for uh, pushing through to this to this point and, and, and your, your patience and your diligence. Uh, I do want to do a little bit more of um, seminar work. Uh, so really just kind of gauge us and, and see what we're taking away from this. So I'll point out a few things and then... Uh, my hope is to lay out a, a sort of program, a synthetic, and by that I mean a, a reductio, a distillation of what St. John is trying to teach us with his gospel, which is ultimately a theory of knowledge and as such a theory of beatitude. So in what does our beatitude consist? There are many options for this. Does it consist in bread alone? Does it consist in power and riches uh, and ultimately, we'll find that it consists in a certain form of knowledge, okay? And this knowledge, we can say, is a secret in that it's a secret between friends that is love. But we cannot say, um, in fact, St. John himself went to great lengths to combat a certain form of knowledge uh, or a demonic parody of knowledge that is gnosis. That is, you know, you you learn things to get to this higher plane of initiation, um, and so to achieve a certain freedom from passing things, which is a common uh, ideology in his day through the Gnostics, through the Stoa as well. Uh, and then this is really combated all the way up to Augustine and beyond. So we are speaking of uh, secrets conveyed, but we have to be very careful that we understand that those secrets are on full view uh, through love himself, which is unveiled naked on a cross, drawing all men to himself. So these secrets that are conveyed through St. John are hiding in plain sight and then called to be imitated mimetically and so made known. So the father um, is made known through this mimetic imitation of love. Okay, so I want to start in uh, John 4. We're going to rewind it a little bit. And with John, it doesn't matter, right? Forwards, backwards, all the same. Um, so in John 4, Jesus meets a woman uh, at the well. Okay, and we know the story. He's is a, uh, a Sumerian woman, uh, not, not a Jew. And so he's sort of in... Uh, hostile territory, right? Not preaching to the choir necessarily, maybe in a place he shouldn't be, according to others. 
And Susan's asking if we can increase the volume. I don't think we can, but it's on your computer end. Um, so just try to crank that. <laughs> Turn it up to 211. Okay. Uh, so we're starting chapter four. Now, when the Lord knew the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, only his disciples. So what is John telling us here? That the, the actions of Jesus, the Lord is making the disciples and baptizing, though Jesus himself is not baptizing. So the Lord's actions are very truly and really being sacramentally conveyed by his members, by his disciples, and he is doing it. Okay. He left Judea and departed again to Galilee. He had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar near the field of Jacob, uh, near the field that Jacob gave to his son, Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus where it is he was with his journey, sat down beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. When John says it's about the sixth hour, you can think about uh, from the, you know, the beginning of creation to the eschaton, uh, you know, sixth hour. Okay. So not just during the day, but uh, through all of time. That's a, not a good word to use, but it's the best one we got. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. His disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? A woman uh, of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, I have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself and his sons and his cattle? Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. The water that I shall give will become a spring of life-giving water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water that I might not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus said, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying you, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands and he with whom you now have is not your husband. This is this you said truly. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain. And you say that Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For such the Father seeks to worship God. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Now, I want to point out uh, one thing that is unique to John among all the other Gospels, and that is he alone, as far as I know, says three different ways what God is. Okay, so here we have God is spirit. Uh, John, 1 John 1, 5, of course, we know God is love. Uh, God is life, God is light, and ultimately punctuated by God is, 
period. And I don't think any other evangelists speak in this way, this authoritatively about the author himself. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and the truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will show us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Okay, and there's much more we could say about this episode in the gospel. But one thing is very interesting, especially when you compare it as we will to John chapter 6, verse 15. And that is, this woman, who's not a Jew, and frankly receives a really mild miracle by miracle standards, like she didn't get raised from the dead, she didn't get her sight restored. Jesus told some her something about herself, which is kind of obvious. Like you probably could have told her the same thing. You know, it wouldn't take rocket scientists to figure this out. But the humility of this miracle, uh, a little miracle, really, and that's enough. She sees you are the Christ, you are the Messiah. And what's interesting is that he affirms her. Okay. And he affirms her because um he uh, she's on to something, and that's very important for our purposes. What's the basis of his kingship is that he will show us all things. So the basis of his kingship is essentially epistemological. This is contrary to the basis of a kingship that was sought by the likes of Judas and the Sicarii, one who will bring a temporal restoration of freedom from temporal oppression to the kingdom of Israel, a freedom of temporal oppression from the Romans, etc. Okay, so and then contrast that to John 6 15, and we won't read the whole thing, but the feeding of the 5,000. So take this woman's little tiny miracle, and she realizes he will show us all things, just like she showed all things, he showed all things about herself. But then we have this grand miracle, the feeding of the 5,000, which was the reading in the traditional calendar just yesterday. This is why I thought of it. Um, and you can, you know, we won't read the whole thing, but you, you know the story, right? He performs this great miracle. They don't know how they're going to eat. They don't have enough money to buy anything. And he feeds 5,000. When people saw this sign, which he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come, who has come into the world. Awesome. You know, because he's giving us stuff, he's giving us bread. Uh, and then John says, 615, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus would get uh, withdrew again to the hills by himself. Okay, so you see the difference. This woman. It's a little tiny miracle performed for and sees that the basis of our Lord's kingship must be epistemological in spirit and knowledge, and that constitutes his dominion. Compare that or contrast that rather to the 5,000 who are fed and so want to make him a king of stuff, a king of bread, a king of transitive goods, a king of Bion is to reference the, the Lucan dichotomy between Bion and Usias. And Jesus says, nope, I'm out of here. Goodbye, you, because you don't get it. Okay. And they would come and take him and make him king by force. Okay. Now, 
It's very interesting. I actually learned this in, in um, my pastor's homily yesterday. And so I'm just relaying that and, and I haven't done any real research into it. So take it as, as it is. But historically, pre-Vatican II, um, and of course, then we have this, the context here is Palm Sunday, which is coming up. Okay. And so they do proclaim this, the, the, the king of stuff camp kind of gets their, gets their will. Uh, so they think for a little while when they all herald him with the palms to make him a temporal king. Okay. And, and very soon thereafter, obviously that, that goes in a different direction that causes those very same followers to completely abandon him, deny him, shout as a community for his crucifixion. But what's interesting among other things, is that pre-Vatican II, the liturgy pre-1955, the rubrics distributed palms, but forbade the faithful to wave them and raise them. Okay. After Vatican II, we are all uh, uh, mandated, <laughs> you know, and that the germ, you know, never, almost never, says faithful do this right so when it does you got to take it pretty seriously and you have to remember that the liturgy itself is the highest source of doctrine authoritatively okay supersedes that of even ecumenical councils um uh, ultimately so so the liturgy the new the new liturgy so to speak has this very interesting uh artifact in it, a mandate that calls the faithful to actually raise their palms in imitation. Um, now, are the authors of this rubric contemplating this? Almost certainly not. You know, they think, oh, praise Jesus, he's the king. But you see, accidentally, we have this historical sacrament at work that very much has an eschatological character. You see, the lay faithful are commanded to imitate Palm Sunday. And certainly at this point, it is beyond the sixth hour. Okay. So this is an interesting thing to keep in mind. Because as I said, the unfolding of history is, for St. John especially, well, and just in truth, it's sacramental. Okay. That is, Peter denies our Lord three times. The Pope denies our Lord three times throughout history. The Pope goes on crusades and inquisitions. Peter takes out his sword and Peter puts his sword away. Uh, the uh, you know the faithful betray our Lord. Priest, clergy, religious, you and me betray our Lord. So everything that is contained in germ in this gospel, we see prophetically carried out in history until he comes again. Okay. And John's insight into our Lord's pierced heart and insight through adoration into his bosom that shows John the Father, John who is the agapetos, that is the beloved. The beloved has this access to the Father that would certainly convey all other things. And John says as much, you know, we, we there's a lot of other things we could write about, but we're not going to do that. And it's not because... He ran out of pages or of papyrus, right? It's not because there's too much granular detail. It's precisely because the work of God is still being accomplished until he comes. Okay.
So uh, any questions, comments, repetition? Crazy talk. I mean, have you guys thought more about the um, the Thomas the Thomas inter- interesting example? This strange twin who must there must be another Thomas somewhere. Um, do you kind of see why that might not exactly be crazy, or do you think it's crazy? It's okay if you think it's crazy. Anybody? I, I, you know, I haven't thought more about it much, but I, I remember reading somewhere that this is the kind of detail that uh, makes the scriptures come across like, um, uh, you know, they're they're not a, a planned sort of story designed to achieve some end, but they're a, an, an honest telling. Yeah, I mean, um, I I don't know. Uh, uh, it's certainly the case that everything in these Gospels is, is divinely inspired, written by the pen of men who are divinely inspired. Um, and it's certainly the case that John is not writing a synoptic history, but a sacramental mythos that, and by myth, don't be scared away by that term, like, oh, it's not real, you know, like Greek gods or something. But uh, in the words of John Paul II, uh, a story that conveys both a history and a metaphysical reality. Um, and so for for John, who is really um, rooted in the adoration that gives him access to the divine heart of reality itself, it's certainly not a stretch. And of course, we know this from reading Revelation that we'll get into, that he's trying to tell us about our own day from an eternal perspective. Okay, so again, you don't have to be convinced, but it's, it's something to something to think about. Okay, so ultimately, this beatitude, as we discussed last week, and if you weren't here last week, make sure you go back and watch uh, that that recording to kind of get an understanding of how humans know. Okay, through passions, through will, and ultimately in the intellect, after reality is abstracted by the ratio and active dimensions of the intellect, the form of truth resides ultimately in the passive intellect or the intellectus or the intuition. Okay, so this highest aspect of the highest human faculty, the intellectus, is that to which all things aim. As St. Thomas Aquinas says, de veritate, the truth is that for which all things um, are made. Okay, or Aristotle, all men by nature desire to know. So every element of our personality, from our fingertips to our sense of smell, to our feet to move around and meet and see different things, is all aimed teleologically and ordered to our passive intellect or intellectus. And the function of the intellectus is in Greek, theoria. Okay, and if you spell that word, you can't but see Theo, which is God. Okay, or even if you translate that word into Latin, contemplatio, there's a very clear reference to temple. Okay, we're back to Greek, eskinosin. Okay, so this dwelling place of God. 
Okay. And and your your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And ultimately, um, there's a sense in which we would say that that um, that is the the core. Augustine's word is the core, C O R, which is the heart. That is the the foundational principle of the entire personality. Um, but even that core and all of its uh, voluntas and everything that emanates out is ordered to the intellectus. Okay. And so like the woman at the well, we have to realize that our salvation, uh, ultimately beatitude consists in a simple act of knowing and loving. Okay. So, and, and remember the definition of contemplation from last week, our partake of the whole good in the form of an intuitive having. Okay. And that can be contrasted with the sort of having that Joseph Pieper says, uh, the lustful man above all wants something for himself. And the lustful man, you can take that in a broader sense than just the sexual lust, but but one who wants parts of things for certain purposes, one who pursues transitive goods as if they are transcendent goods. You see the difference between transitive and transcendent. Okay, so um, I'm going to lay out some principles, okay, that are going to hopefully give a little framework and are going to connect some dots uh, and a few scattered things that we mentioned in the past. Okay, one, this act of contemplation is fundamentally sacramental. Uh, This is very true for St. John. Contemplation is sacramental in that we must see, we must intuit through the mediation of flesh. Physical signs must convey ultimate metaphysical realities, ultimately being itself. Being itself is conveyed to us through particular beings. So Jesus walks around and they all say, you know, in honor of St. Joseph, right? They all say, isn't this the carpenter's son? Which is a joke. Isn't quies es, filius fabri, or Greek architectanos. Isn't this the son of the maker? Yes. And yes, you see. Okay. But he appears uh, as something, uh, uh, you know, that we can, that we can see, touch, taste, feel. Um, and then he conveys to us being itself as I am. Okay. Principle one. And this is not like in a book somewhere. It's, I mean, it's just a helpful little rubric that I came up with. It might be helpful or it might not be. Okay. So contemplation is sacramental. Number two, it is fundamentally Eucharistic. The whole of reality is gratuitously conveyed to us in our own mode in this life. Okay, so the whole of reality is gratuitously conveyed to us, as John says, or Jesus says in John 6, eat, and he is very clear, the word there, trogain, eat as beasts eat, so you can know that I am. Third principle, 
this reality is hidden and veiled in the beautiful darkness of a womb or in the beautiful darkness of a tomb. So Magdalene encounters this beautiful darkness before sunrise on Easter morning. The Baptist encounters it in the beautiful darkness of the Blessed Mother's womb. And we right now find ourselves in the beautiful darkness of that same woman's womb. As we'll see in the book of Revelation, she is in labor. And is she in labor, you know, on December 24th of year zero? Yes. And is she in labor now? Yes. And who is to be born? The body. Okay. So that's us. That's him. Okay. But uh, the, 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 the beautiful, uh, the reality is hidden in the beautiful darkness of a womb or a tomb. Same thing. Okay. Um, as such, it involves a secret. Its contents are not known to the naked eye. Its contents are not easily known to the physical eye. It involves a new kind of sight that is only visible through this cipher of love. John 14, 19, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. And that word for sight there is, of course, theoria. Next. This invisible secret of love is constantly betrayed by the sensible, transitive, passing modes of communication that are all constantly vying for us and for our intellects by lying to us, telling them that they are the whole and entire good whether that is Taco Bell that you are really craving or 30 pieces of silver that you think can, you can use to change the world. Okay, so the very modes through which these realities are conveyed, that is their sensible transitive modes, are both the source of their transmission. We call this tradition, tradere, paradidinoi, to hand on. We also call this betrayal, tradere, paradidinoi, to betray. Okay, so the very same things, namely our sensible passions and these transitive goods, because of our fallen state, are working at every turn to convince us that this is the whole good and there is nothing more to be conveyed. And not only are they conveying the reality, as the poet, uh, I think William Blake says, to see heaven in a grain of sand. Okay, it's true. Every grain of sand can convey something to us about all that is. But every grain of sand can also convince you that it is the highest good that your will 
can pursue. And so every material being is both conveying truth and betraying truth at the same exact time. Just as every apostle in the upper room is both handing on truth and handing over truth to the naked eye, it's the same exact action. One involves the cipher of love and so makes it real, holistic, lasting, eternal. The other involves only the appearance of love. Couldn't we have sold these things and given them to the poor? But it's a lie. This counterfeit love. But to most, the beast and the lamb are indistinguishable. Visible only to those who see with eyes of love. And love is fundamentally an act of receptivity. Love is the dynamic receptivity inherent in being itself. When our Lord says, unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground, it remains just a grain of wheat. Unless you decrease, you cannot increase. Unless you die, you cannot live. He's not telling us a new commandment. He's not giving us a new evangelical counsel. He's just telling us the way things are. Even at a natural level. And so our Lord's passion, historical passion, takes the place of our fallen passions that betray us at every turn. And he converts those passions in so to his. And at that at the cross of Jesus, we find the most decisive receptivity. He draws all men to himself. And if that exchange of passio is neglected or denied or rejected or becomes a scandal, then we are left with the definitive suffering, which John Paul II calls hell. In the cross, the eternal logos assumes our passio, the passing from its depths. And so through his glory, which is conveyed in secret, he tricks death and so robs death of its thing. Because though we want to murder God, he is life itself. Okay, and and it, it's it's worth pointing out. We'll probably do a little bit more on this if we have time. But the beauty of the um, 
diametric opposition of our passio in this fallen order and, and the gifts of the resurrected body in the next life. So, you know, it's actually a beautiful question. Um, how old are you in heaven? Uh, Aquinas says, uh, after the resurrection of the body, everybody's the perfect age. I think he says men are 19. No, so no, no, men are 33. But Jesus, the perfect age. Yeah, men are 33. And women, he, he's, he doesn't give an exact number. He's smart enough not to do that. But maybe, what, 19, 20, something. I don't know. But you're the perfect age in heaven. Okay. In heaven, can you fly? Yes. You'll have perfect agility. Um, uh, you know, you think, what is agility? It's just the body's alignment with the will's desires. It'll be perfectly united. So you think of a, a highly trained athlete, you can, you know, do a 360 dunk or whatever, kick a 50-yard field goal. It's his body doing what his mind wants it to do. You know, I want to do that too. And I can't because I lack a certain agility. Um, and it doesn't get any easier because the passions and, you know, everything's so corrupted and we're just, you know, our telomeres are falling off and, and, and we are, we are destined for Adam's dirt. But if we unite ourselves to his passion, the entire order is resurrected body and soul this body comes back so you have agility uh yeah robert one, one of my confirmation students once uh put a little doodle on her homework a picture of mother Teresa uh flying through the air about to slam dunk a, a basketball comes to mind from she, what you were saying you can do that um <laughs> if, she, if she has better things to do i'm not sure um but and and all these all these gifts are are reflected in Christ's own resurrection, uh, the gift of um, impassibility. So we feel no pain, even though our wounds are still there, no, though now glorious. The gift of subtlety, um, so a certain softness and ability to interpenetrate other bodies, uh, walk through walls as our Lord does, and the gift of clarity. So the ability to uh, see through the lumen gloria, which is the very glory of God bestowed gratuitously through a special grace on the blessed that gives us insight into everything all at once to know as we are known. And so when you see saints pictured with halos, you know, uh, there's a beautiful sign of glory. You know, but that glory is diametrically uh reciprocal to their mode of suffering in this life you know you see the sistine chapel and bartholomew's holding up his skin like a boss you know he got he got skin andrew's on the x like a boss you know it's all this sign of glory all of a sudden so john the baptist would have just this beaming radiance from the scars on his neck um and and down you know down to a granular level um you know you pick your mode of infirmity and united to the cross, that will become the mode of glory. Okay, that will uh, serve you know in your heavenly kingship uh, over you know principally your own flesh, which has given you trouble in the previous life, um, and then in some ways over everything around you, but in perfect harmony. Okay, so no tyranny, no 
um, oppression, um, just perfect rule as reflected by the perfect rule of Christ God. Okay. Um, so that's, uh, I kind of got into it, but that's the sixth principle. I was going to give you the union with the logos through his passion as bride and recipient. You are the bride, you are the recipient, um, terminates in glory. Okay. So he is, he's prepared. He's prepared his bride, which we'll talk about in the book of Revelation, to be spotless and without blemish. So it's very much, I think, I think Lance, you were asking about this in one of the first classes. Like there's very much a matrimonial element that we need to talk to talk about next week when we get into Revelation. Okay. And then finally, the seventh principle. I wish Jason were here because he remembers my Batman class, but if you've seen the Christopher Nolan's Dark Knight Rises. The last scene is John Blake, strangely enough, signified by the bird, the youngest disciple who gets a sort of promotion uh, and is our is our Batman's beloved disciple, right? But the last scene is he swings back into the cave to then make the mission known again. So the seventh principle is the mission of the Agapetos, that is John, you, beloved disciple, lay faithful, whatever, is to convey, is to reconvey these mysteries until he comes again. As the Father sends me, even so I send you. John 20, 21. Okay, and then we have full circle. Okay. Um, any questions or comments about those seven principles, you can almost fit them on a bumper sticker of St. John's Theology. Is that intelligible to you? Yes or no? Okay, yes, 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 yes. Okay. Okay, good. So contemplation is sacramental. It is fundamentally Eucharistic. Uh, it is veiled in a beautiful darkness, which has an allusion to your purgative states and your mystical life, hiding in the shadow of his wings. Night is darkest just before the dawn, however you want to put it. Okay. Um, Don? Oh, sorry. Yes. Hey, Susan. Yes. Hey. Darn, I really wanted to be quiet <laughs> through the class, but I, I wanted... To ask how, um, I mean, this is all so deeply to our faith, but it seems so difficult to um, teach children how to convey this to your kids. Oh, Any yeah. Of it. Oh, that's an easy one. Um, that's a really easy one. You know, easiest answer. Um, you know, and St. John was asked this, and there's tales of him as a very, very old man that are passed down to us by his disciples. And, you know, in the village, you know, after our Blessed Mother's assumption, you know, obviously he lived to a very, very old age. Um, I don't even know when he died. Maybe he's still around, who knows. But, um, you know, people would come from all over and they would ask him, you know, teacher, 
what do we do? You know, like teach us, like you knew our Lord, you're, you're, you know, at some point, at least he was the last guy in the world to have had, you know, physical contact with our Lord. So they would ask him all these questions. And he was known to just say over and over again, love one another, love one another, love one another, love one another. So that's the answer. You know, that's the best you can do for your kids or any kids is, um, is love them, die for them every day. And it's a beautiful opportunity as parents because kids don't always love you back. They throw things at you and poop all over the place and pee on your couch and, you know, but that's, that's a beautiful thing, right? Uh, and then in, someday they'll do the same for you. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in talking again to young people, I, my, these confirmation students I have are so young, but I, I, I guess that can be good for me to force me to try to do like, like, you know, Susan and think, how do you teach this to young people? And um, one of the examples I used for them was uh, when you, when you, when you pray, you know, you need to, to be sure you've, you've forgiven your, your brother. And I say, you know, would you go to your parents and ask for a bicycle for Christmas after you've just, you know, hurt your sibling, you know, and haven't asked for forgiveness yet. And how, think about how, you know, the stranger, the, the person dying on the streets of Calcutta is, is a child of God. And, and if you, you know, don't love that neighbor of yours, it's like a, a little child, not, uh, taking care of their sibling when they're, you know, babysitting and letting the sibling run out into the street or whatever. And so that, that seems to click with the young yeah, people. I think that's right. And, you know, I don't know how explicit it is in St. John, but just, you know, from my perspective, teaching young people, um, the, the best thing, and it's really a lost art with most teachers these days, is authentic respect, right? We talk about love, but love is a mutual indwelling and a mutual receptivity. So if we can't approach students and children as, and by respect, there's a very technical definition of this word that's helpful for us. Um, you know, respect is to see in the other the ability to actualize us as he's an agent, we're a patient. So to the ability to be actualized by your disciple is, in a word, respect. The awareness that you are being actualized by your disciple, mutually, receptively, you know, you know that is powerful to a young person. Uh, and it's true, and it really gives us, um, you know, I think we come into teaching situations or, you know, even parenting situations, just expecting, you know, obey me because I'm your dad. It's like, no, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Or even, you know, running a company, right. Um, you have to earn it. You have to earn trust. And you do that as our Lord does it by laying down his life every day for his sheep. That's what in John 10 is beautiful. He says, you know, you're used to hearing this phrase. I'm the good shepherd, my sheep hear me and they know my voice. But John's word for good here is actually kalos, kalon, so the beautiful. I am the beautiful shepherd. It's a very different word on the good shepherd, you know, like, you know, he's a nice guy. He's, you know, he's not as bad as the other shepherd. He's the beautiful shepherd. Well, what makes his shepherding 
so beautiful and worthy of imitation and noble is that he's willing to lay down his life for his sheep and his sheep know that and so hear his voice. And he says the hireling in John 10, the hireling is one who will flee for fear of the wolves. Okay. How much of our church, how much of our parenting, how much of our work day is spent as mere hirelings that is punching out and punching in for a transitive good. You know, you're trying to do something eternal and consequential, mimetic, um, transcendent, but we treat it as an exchange for a transitive good. That's why at AMI, we don't pay our teachers. We offer them honoraria right? because we don't trade money for this because it's, you can't put a price on it. So, but you know, we, we offer a, a steady, substantial honoraria that we try to make a, a befitting um, acknowledgement of their dignity as great teachers. I'm not taking an honorary for this one, Nicole. This is yeah, no way. So, um, but you see, um, so uh, the beautiful. Uh, I, yes. oh, sorry. I wish you could always teach the gospel of Satan, John. I think you're genius at it. And it's so rich that, I mean, you could spend months just on one paragraph. You could. The way yeah. you teach it. Thanks. The way you teach it. That's very kind of you to say, Susan. It's not like riding a bike, though. I'm like so rusty, so I apologize to you. But enough of that, because it's not about me. It's about John. All right, John 21. Um, this is the last thing, you know, and you're probably thinking, well, why? Sorry for that light there. You're probably thinking, why are we? talking so much about the gospel if this is an uh, eschatology class, and why don't we just spend the whole time on Revelation? Because John's gospel is eschatological, and it's the last thing he wrote. But John 21 in particular is eschatological like nothing in the book of Revelation even is. And I'll show you why, but I have to go shut this uh, blinds. Just give me one second. I'm going to shut the blinds so I don't have the sun right Okay. So there is, you know, if you read commentaries on this, people say this clearly wasn't written by John. It was written by some other community of believers that was in John's school. And uh, frankly, it doesn't matter, as we've seen, you know, if, if, if they know you, they know my father, which means if they know Polycarp, who's John's disciple, uh, a martyr, they know John and they know the father. So in one sense, it doesn't matter. Okay. That said, I think John wrote it. I don't know. We'll know in heaven. Um, I think, you know, the tradition ascribes it to John for a reason. The same thing, the same reason the tradition ascribes in order to the gospels, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, that's the order. Um, and then, you know, a bunch of German historical critical Methodists come along in the 19th century and say, oh, there must be a cue, you know, and and it's like critical thinking. OK, you know, fine, maybe I don't I don't particularly buy it, but it's not that it's not that important. OK, um, so. Um, John. Yes, I, 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 yeah, I mean, I'm probably totally wrong, but it seems to me like. Like you can see John receiving this authority 
to speak on the nature of God in his gospel in Revelation. Yes. And, and um, so I guess I would say it does kind of matter because he shows also in Revelations, I think, that the reason... It, it, Jesus, it does matter. Yeah, it does matter insofar as it's true. All I'm saying is don't get too caught up on it, you know? And when Riley here goes off to grad school one day, He's going to have a bunch of people with the best of intentions telling him that there's this Q theory and that, you know, uh, Mark was written first and that this community of believers wrote St. John. And unfortunately, that's just the water we're swimming in. And all I'm saying is don't get too hung up on that. Uh, I, I just wanted to ask if I could I see uh, in that whole question in Revelation, to me, it shows the difference between one of the major differences between Catholic and Protestant is he says pretty specifically that only Jesus could open the divine scrolls. And that's specifically because he is the lamb of God who gave up his life. Yeah. So but what's, kind of, what's the, what's the very next, the very next verse in revelation one there is that John if somehow right after that has the authority to open the same scrolls. Okay. But for now, the most eschatological thing, in my opinion, that John ever wrote, and that is John 20, 21. And we will read it. It is short. Uh, in some uh, versions, they call this the, the epilogue, right? Some, you know, John finished with chapter 20 and then wrote 21 or somebody else. It doesn't matter. Okay. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the sea of Tiberias, and he revealed himself in this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, so James and John, and two other of his disciples were together. Simon, uh, by the way, when is John writing this? Maybe 100 AD. He just listed what? A litany. Where were all those other disciples at that moment? They were martyred. Every single disciple that he just listed had already publicly, very famously, met his death. So we're in the papacy of maybe Clement of this point. Or Sixtus even. Who knows? Okay, so John is, you know, he's kind of zoom out, right? John is writing this as a bishop to the church universal. And even until Augustine's day, the Council of Hippo, you know, talk about Susan's comment on, on scripture, you know, scripture consisted in every of every single uh, epistle that was written by every single bishop until it was canonized and really fleshed out uh, at the Council of Hippo. So 300 years, I mean, you had a canon that was just like, one, you know, you didn't know what was in it uh, and what was not in it, um, but it was just always being expanded, 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 okay? Until, you know, Council of Hippo, then we, you know, and that's my favorite question to ask a Protestant. Um, who gave your Bible its table of contents? Thank the Council of Hippo, right? 
Okay. So, well, and then they took out seven books. So, but that's a different story. Okay. But the point is here, John is writing as a bishop of the church. And, you know, um, you could say he might've had a C uh, Ephesus or something. Uh, by certainly by this time, he would have appointed, a, you know, sort of co-juter bishop. Um, you think of you know, the, the canon and the mass that was um, Peter, Linus, Clement, Sixtus, Cornelian, right? And all these popes, we're not really sure on the order. I think, you know, the tradition has them in some order. But these guys were getting martyred so fast that Peter would have essentially ordained, you know, a group of four or five coadjutor bishops so that one was just ready to go when the previous one lost his head or was crucified, fed to the lions, whatever it was. Okay, and that situation is really mirrored in the the pontifical situation of our recent day, which we can talk about later. Okay, um, okay. So John lists in in this beautiful litany all of the apostles who had gone to their witness, their their martyrdom. Okay, and. Uh, Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the two other disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. Peter. Uh, they said to him, we will go with you. They went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. So you have to imagine, right? And John's retelling the story of the last time that our Lord appeared. And, okay, he just walked through the walls and showed his wounds. And you have Peter, the Prince of the Apostles, saying, I'm going to go back to my former trade in search of transitive goods. There's two ways to read this, right? One is, I'm going back to the old ways. The other is, I'm going to go try to get a harvest of souls. I mean, I think they both work, right, in the allegory at work here. But you remember, John is probably not a fisherman by trade. You know, it's commonly said that he was. But as we see from his uh, easy access into uh, the the temple when our Lord was being questioned by the Sanhedrin um, and uh, uh, Zebedee's title and the name. Everything points to this fact that St. John was really a Levite in training, a temple elite, a rich kid. Okay, so John is not really primarily a dirty fisherman. His father, you know, either own some sort of charter expedition because he's listed as a co-worker of Peter, but, um, or maybe they're vacationing who knows. Okay. There's different theories, but John was not a, you know, dirty, poor fisherman. Okay. So Peter, you have to always, you know, think of this tension between John and Peter. It exists today. Okay. Peter says, I'm going fishing and they all go, you know, we'll go with you. Okay. And they went out in the boat and they caught nothing. You can imagine John going, like, okay, Peter, I go where you go. I get it. You know, I'll go fishing too. Uh, probably didn't want to go fishing. Verse four, just as day was breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. And yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. So just as day was breaking, think of this as an eschatological illusion. Okay. It's about to be the new day. Okay. And Jesus said to them, children, have you caught any fish? They answered him, no. Uh, raise your hand if you've ever been fishing. 
You guys don't fish? Okay, great. You fish. And what's the most annoying question anybody can ask you when you're fishing? Catch anything? You know, like, no, you know. Catch anything yet. There's always the Catch yet. anything yet? Yeah. <laughs> no. Okay. It's like oldest time, you know, is it's Jesus is just pranking these guys at this point. It, you know, he knows they don't know it's him. He's hey, hey, you guys catch anything? How you doing out there fishing? Um, and he said, uh, and then and then what's the second most annoying question when you're fishing? Uh, what are you using for bait? You know, um, so not only does Jesus ask this annoying question, are you, did you catch anything? They say no, very curtly. But then he tells them how to fish. And they still know who he is. Cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. Like, that's the sweet spot. I don't know how to read this right side of the boat thing. You know, it's really convenient for me to want to put some sort of like political spin on it. You know, that's where you're going to find the fish. Um, but I think I would be veering too far into, you know, uh, shallowly uh, to, to ascribe that, though it is cute. Um, but the right hand of God, the power, right? Um, but he just says, casting it to the right side of the boat, you'll find some. And they, they do it. So they cast it. And now they were not able to haul it in for the quantity of fish. Um, now, you have to imagine this before we go on because they're just reveling in all the fish, woo, you know, transitive good, transitive good, transitive good. Okay. Or if you read it the other way, many, many souls. Okay. Um, and Peter's just probably going crazy. Like, Whoa, you know, we went fishing. We got some, he's totally forgotten about the guy on the beach. And then uh, you have like this scene out of a movie when, um, you know, you're just talking poorly about somebody behind their back at a party and then the guy you're talking about walks in behind you and you can't see him and then the whole party stops like the record scratches and everybody knows and then the guy's like oh he's right behind me isn't he so we have this beautiful moment that really has a uh, i think a dramatic import for our day that disciple whom jesus loved said to peter it is the Lord and converts Peter. Peter does not notice him. That disciple can see with the eyes of love. It's Peter. Peter, it's the Lord. And this has a beautiful import for our day because we have this moment where the beloved disciple, the beloved faithful, points out to the papacy and causes a conversion in Peter. And Peter turns. Uh, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his clothes, for he was stripped for work and sprang into the sea. Now, who puts on their clothes before they jump into the ocean? Very strange. So you see Peter is caught in this moment, smelling a little bit too much like the fish. You know, there's this the papal saying, right? The, the sheep, or the shepherd should smell like the sheep. And John knows exactly what he's writing about. And, you know, he's made clear the office between Peter and John. Uh, John waits at the tomb for Peter. 
John would have been well aware and would have read St. Paul's writing. You know, I opposed Kephas to his face, but he's Peter, so I go along with him. So the principality of Peter at this time would have been well established, well canonized, well ingrained into the entire census fidelium. John knows, you know, who the Bishop of Rome is. He knows who the principal apostle is. And yet he's telling us that as the beloved disciple, he had some power to convert Peter when he was distracted and focusing on the wrong things and unable to recognize the Lord. When Simon Peter heard it was the Lord, he put on his clothes, for he was stripped for work and sprang into the sea. So he Peter redons his papal regalia. There's a beautiful image. You know, he's caught a little too naked. And, and this is beautiful because he springs into the sea for love. You know, the man who was afraid that he was perishing because of the chaotic sea is now going to jump right into it. Maybe he tried to walk on it and just, you know, kind of floundered there for a while while Jesus had a chuckle. But the other disciples came in the boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from land, about 100 yards off. So the boat that is the bark of Peter was approaching its terminus. They were not far away from it. So this is eschatological, right? There, it's almost the end of days. Peter abandons the boat out of a certain love of our Lord, leaves it without a captain. Very strange thing for this boat that will not be abandoned until our Lord comes again. It's abandoned in the last hour. But somehow it gets to the beach. So how does this boat get to the beach? It's a question for you. But the other disciples came in a boat, dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far off from the land, about 100 yards off. So not only are they hauling the boat and everything in it, but everything behind it, their entire payload, coming with them, and how does that boat get to the beach without its captain? Is is Peter, like, it seems like he's holding on to the net, and, like, I don't know if he's moving, if he's lifting up the fish so they can move. Oh, interesting. But, because he comes behind, because if they're dragging, and then it says he went up and drew the net to land. <laughs> yeah. No, that's interesting. I mean, yeah, presumably you'd have to have a captain in the boat, you know, to get it to the right place. So, you know, historically, we just don't know. The The author of this gospel is absent on the question, and I think it's a beautiful thing for us to imagine. You know, you could have had a moment where John, the non-fisherman, says, uh, Peter's off the boat, you know, hold my beer. Okay, I got this, right? And the faithful sort of pilot pilot the boat to the beach. Um, somebody would have had to get it there. And we got um, when they John, oh, yes. doesn't doesn't Jesus draw the boat to himself? 
Well, Jesus loved the boat into being in the net as well, but yeah. you know, presumably this boat has a captain. And um, oh, we have a comment here that might shed some light. Does it say Thomas say that the boat signifies the church? Oh yeah, who said that? Yes, and I'm sorry that should be evident. Um, that absolutely is the case. It's the bark of Peter, and so that's well said. Yeah, the boat absolutely signifies the church. Its captain is absolutely Peter. He commands the vessel. He calls everybody to go fishing, and then at the last moment when he's converted by love through the gentle eh, John's nudging. Okay. Now, what's beautiful here is that if you imagine um, Judas's betrayal, and just think back to the Last Supper, John sees the betrayal of Judas for all that it is, but nobody else can. And what does John do? He remains silent. He adores our Lord. Here, he does something different. Rather than, rather than be silent, he chooses to inform Peter. So John finally speaks. John finally teaches Peter and directs Peter and converts Peter. And Peter is compelled by this love and imitation of it. You know, it's not as placid as John's beautiful, adoring in the bosom. It's a little more frantic. <laughs> Um, but it's an act of great love. He jumps off the boat and he swims to our Lord. But John caused that by pointing this out to Peter. And so his faithful, you know, when we see Peter erring, you know, it's true. When we see betrayal, the best response, usually the only fruitful response is to silently adore and console our Lord who suffers more than we ever could in this act of betrayal. But at the same time, the faithful, uh, through this archetype, St. John, are called at some point to educate Peter, as daunting as that might be. So the, the census fidelium educates, teaches, directs, converts the captain of this bark. When they got out of land, verse 9, when they got out on land, they saw a charcoal fire there with fish lying on it and bread. Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. So two things to say about this. One, good old Peter is now back on the boat, okay? At the very last minute, it's already docked, doesn't matter, but the captain does get back on the ship, okay? This has a great eschatological uh, import and teaching for us that the captain will resume his ship, albeit, you know, for a brief moment to collect his bounty and then haul it off the boat. Um, you know, and the other implication here is that originally John and the disciples were hauling the fish, but then somehow John got all the fish on the boat. So they weren't just in the net when Peter got up there, they were actually in the bark. 
in full communion. Okay. So you can see, I mean, you can make many things from this. You could, you could glean the reuniting of the East and the West. You could name, you could glean the conversion of the Protestants, the conversion of the Jews. You know, there's a beautiful scene, I think, in Luke's gospel where it says there were so many fish that they had to call to their friends in the other boat. And I think this is Luke's allusion to this reunification of the churches. So Peter gets on the boat to claim his prize. Like, Look what I did, Jesus. You know, he's, Jesus is like, yeah, I told you where to put the net, you know. Um so Peter goes aboard. I shouldn't make fun of Peter. I, I mean, Peter and I are going to be great friends in heaven. Hopefully, you know, I, he's going to have a, he's going to poke me or something. Um, okay. So Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. I've done a lot of work trying to figure out what 153 means here. And I don't have a good answer for you. So feel free to Google away and let me know next week if you have one. And Jesus said to them, come have breakfast. So they're going to um, not only haul the, the fish in, but over this created fire. So this um, that which illuminates. So we have a, a vision here of the Lumen Gloriae, this light through which they will see and enjoy their bounty and rest in that. Uh, and they did it, right? Jesus did not. Uh, multiply the fish this time. You know, he did not do a miracle to do this. He empowered and directed his disciples to do this. And so they enjoy reigning as kings on the beach, over their fish, consuming in the flesh uh, what they have caught. So it's it's a very Eucharistic thing here, albeit with fish now instead of bread. Now, none of his disciples dared to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Now, what's interesting, they they can't see still that this is Jesus, but they never dared to ask because they knew. So how do they know? They're knowing now in a way that's not being mediated by their senses, but by his. They will see him face to face. They will know even as they are known. They knew it was the Lord. This is uh, beatitude in a sentence. Jesus came and took the bread and gave it to them, and so with the fish. So again, beautiful Eucharistic illusion. Okay, he's giving. And who brought the bread? He brings the bread. They bring the fish. Okay, and that's heaven. This was now the third time, this this perfect, complete time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished, this is Peter given a command, John 21, 15. When they had finished breakfast, so breakfast implying a new day has begun. It's not dinner. It's not a midnight snack. It's breakfast. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, (laughs) Simon, really, you know, Bart Jonah, he's really son of John. Why is John just bringing up his surname here? Because he's trying to show us the relationship between the papacy and the faithful. Between Peter and the beloved disciple. 
It's very poignant. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And here Jesus, for the word love, uses that of the beloved disciple, agape. Agapos. Okay, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord. You know that I love you. Agapos. He said to him, feed my lambs. A second time, he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And here, Peter's word for love is filio. Uh, so sort of friendship, love. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Phileas. Peter was grieved because he said for a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you, Phileos. John said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you fastened your own belt. And walk to where you would, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and another will fasten your belt for you and carry you where you do not wish to go. And then John is explicit here. This he said to show by what death he was to glorify God. And after this, he said to him, follow me. In other words, Christ begins this questioning with, you know, do you love me like John? Do you love me? Agape. And it reduces to, I love you, not quite like John, I love you filial. I love you filially. filially. Uh, those will be, we will be co-workers. In the Aristotelian sense, friendship in this is what one cannot do, the other will do for him. Perfect definition of friendship. Um, or as Paul says, we're co-workers with Christ. Okay, but these the sense of cooperator is a very different function in the church than that of the agapetos, than that of the adorer, and that's okay. You have Marys and you have Marthas, you have Peters and you have Johns, and that's okay. But Peter is not John, and John is not Peter. And so John is going to bring it full circle now. Verse 20, Peter turned and saw following them the disciple whom Jesus loved, Agapetos. So Peter's going to turn around and say, oh, well, I'm, I'm filial, okay? I'm a co-worker. Great. What about this guy? What about the adorer? The one who had lain close to his breast literally in culpos, in the treasured pocket, in the bosom, one who is in culpos, one who is in the bosom. Uh, laid close to his breast at the supper and it said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? And that's what Peter saw of that exchange. Peter saw it from the outside. 
and saw John asking our Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? Peter did not see and did not have access to the interior disposition and secret conveyed between friends. It is simple love, the simplicity of love. Peter still does not necessarily even have access to that secret between friends, apart from this outward sign that is the beloved disciple who Peter now sees. When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. Then be my co-worker. The saying spread abroad. Uh, and the saying here, I don't know what you have, but the uh, this is beautiful because the word for saying is actually what? Logos. Huh. Yes, you see, we're back. We're back to the prologue. The Logos, the word, Christ. It's not just this little saying, you know, this little anecdote. It's Christ himself. The Logos spread abroad among the brethren that this disciple was not to die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he was not to die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Now, what do we make of this? Is St. John perhaps dwelling in a cave like the night in Indiana Jones guarding the Holy Grail? You know, a very, very old man who is like 2,022 years old who just can't die for some reason. Maybe, I don't know. Um, but what's for sure is that our, our Lord asked this question, you know, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? And the answer that we have from St. John is, yes, he will. This is the disciple, 24, this is the disciple who is bearing witness to these things. So it's beautiful here, bearing witness, martyron. This is the disciple who is a martyr to these things. Ironically or not, because our Lord just explained how he would not be martyred in the same way as Peter. In this transitive, sensible, visible way. The martyrdom of St. John would be one as a flame of undying love. And so even in St. John's love is perfected. When we first meet John as a young man in the Gospels, in the Synoptics, he wants to call down love, a fire from heaven. He's like, hey, Lord, there's an unbelieving town. Let's fire and brimstone these fools. You know, let's, let's just get them. Call down the fire from heaven. And in an old man, as an old man, John was known to say, love, love, love. So he does call down fire of heaven that is consuming converting, changing, and much more powerful than any physical transitive fire could be. This is the disciple who is, not who did, who is bearing witness to these things and who has written these things 
We know his testimony to be true. So he answers the historical critical critics here, unless this is just some plagiarist, which tradition affirms is not. He is writing these things. But there are also many other things which Jesus did, which Jesus does, which every one of them were to be written, I suppose, that the world itself could not contain the books that could be written. I have to check the Greek there, and I don't have it open, but I'd be really surprised if John uses the first person there. Um, maybe we can, I'll check that and report back next week. But as I said earlier, that um, it's not because there's so much detail to be written. It's because this account is being written until he comes again in glory. Okay, uh, so you could spend a lot of time, and I encourage you to do so, especially during Holy Week, meditating on the entire last part of John in its eschatological and epistemological dimensions. You know, to what extent is Christ's apprehension in the garden your epistemological receptive act? To what extent does his passion make him known? They shall look upon him whom they have pierced. Yes, Susan. All right, John, does, does, doesn't John suffer his passion? Does the Blessed Mother at the foot of the cross witnessing the crucifixion? Absolutely. Isn't that his martyrdom? Uh, absolutely, and 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 the martyrdom that he suffers um, through his patriarchal witness throughout his life in the church as bishop, um, recreating the sacrifice. You know, we could imagine our blessed mother receiving communion from the hands of Saint John. Isn't it kind of wild that in the last paragraph you have Peter? three times about his love when he betrayed three times and then the Lord he, he, he says it's none of your business what happened what I do with John but in fact if the Lord had explained to Peter why John had already gone through his martyrdom it would have it could have crushed Peter you know uh yes no that that's yeah. Well, say more about the last part. What do you mean by that? that, that well, it would have, it would have, I mean, Peter's so insecure at this point um, that the Lord doesn't believe he loves him. And he's asked three times, which might remind him of the three betrayals. But I mean, couldn't it, couldn't it be taken by Peter very badly to say, John has already gone through his passion and martyrdom. He stayed with me through the crucifixion Well, while you yeah, were betraying I me. I don't know that it's that much of a rebuff as much as a call to imitation. But what you do have that's interesting is this very pregnant silence by St. Peter at the end of this exchange. You know, Peter doesn't have any, like, there's no, like, Peter went away sad or Peter didn't get it. There's just a beautiful silence. And he says to him, follow me. Okay, and then Peter says, well, what about this guy? 
And Jesus speaks about this guy. And we do know, as a matter of history, that Peter did follow our Lord exactly as he was commanded, uh, with great love and great fidelity um, and great humility in the way that he requested. That's beautiful. That's right, Robert. Yeah, the way that he requested, uh, he wasn't even worthy to die in the same way that our Lord died. And so I, I just, I meant that the, maybe the Lord didn't explain John's martyrdom to Peter out of compassion for Peter. But I mean, I, I, I think, just, he does. I think oh. he does. And, 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 and not only out of passion uh, or out of compassion, but as a way to educate Peter. Um, and like I said, John actually calls Peter to love and to see the Lord who is on the beach. And Peter doesn't see, he's turned the wrong direction. And John speaks for once. And this speech is very powerful. Um, so there's so much we can take from this. Um, and, I, and I do hope you meditate on it. I don't have much more to say on it um, unless anybody has any questions or comments. And we can leave it at that for tonight and enjoy the Feast of St. Joseph. Yes. Well, it just you, you had asked us to think about why um, Peter swam to shore. Yes. And I don't think we really talked about it that much. But I, I uh, in just the only thing I could come up with was that Peter had not had the opportunity yet to, to um, make up for what he had done and to show his loyalty. And, and so he was, I, I have the sense that he, oh, my gosh, that's. That's Jesus. I, I need to uh, go and apologize. I need I need to get to him. So, you know, jumping in the water when he could have just waited for a minute to get to shore in the boat. It seems like a you know just just like him that that um, sort <laughs> yeah. of you know going from the gut and and his desire maybe afraid to ask for forgiveness or. You know, one of those, I know how for me, sometimes I want to talk to somebody about something and apologize. And it's not easy. Sometimes you're, you're, you're looking for an excuse to not do it, but uh, maybe he realized he needed to, this was his shot. That's right. And he took it. Uh, that's a beautiful reflection. I think, I think there's a lot of truth to that. And in beautiful Peter fashion is sort of hasty and sloppy and impulsive. Uh, but like a child, you know, he, he jumps off the boat. Um, and I think it's beautiful that he, you know, as I said, he redones the papal regalia. He covers himself. He was lightly clad and ashamed for that. Uh, you know, yeah. Bishop uh, Barron in this uh, Word on Fire gospel says that uh, um, it was like Adam and Eve in the garden that that uh, he was embarrassed of his, of his nakedness. And, and uh, so. Yeah. John definitely has that um, at work. Uh, so, yeah, I could think more about that too. And I will, because, you know, originally man is naked and unashamed. Here, Peter is, you know, naked and ashamed and covers himself, but seems to be doing some sort of, justice in the process and you could imagine every other apostle on that boat was also lightly clad um, and dressed for the occasion of fishing and so yeah i don't know what to make of that there's probably a lot okay very good let's pray in the name of the father the son and the holy spirit 
Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, Son of Mary, we beg your mercy on us. Uh, for when we are weak, we are strong. So we ask you to unite us in the simplicity of our love, in our weakness and infirmity, that in so uniting ourselves to your precious cross in this Lent and Holy Week, which is upon us, we might too become partakers in your glory. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give, give us this day, day our daily bread. And give us our trespasses. As we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Amen. St. John, pray for us. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Solemnity. Enjoy it. See you next week. Bye-bye. The Magnus Podcast is a production of the Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. To learn more, way more, by becoming a fellow today, visit magnusinstitute.org. Copyright 2023, Albertus Magnus Institute, Incorporated. All rights reserved.